Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a discussion paper that's been issued by the ISB, and it's on business combinations, disclosures, goodwill, and impairment. And to help me through the 105 pages, I'm joined by Paul Shepherd. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks for having me back. I can't have been too bad last time. There you go. <laughs> I've let you back in to talk about impairment. I feel like we talked about impairment last time as well, didn't we? I, I'm pretty sure we did. Yep. It's your favourite topic. At the moment, you stay yeah, silent. <laughs> Um, and uh, just so what we're going to cover in this podcast is like I said it is quite a big document and for those that maybe haven't got time to read it and want to know what's in there we're just going to talk through the high level um, discussions and questions that are a part of it but this isn't I suppose you know we still the deadline's not there so this isn't a PwC opinion of what's in there it's more just taking you through so you know if you want to comment so on that let's get into it Tell us a little bit about why this discussion paper has been issued in the first place. Well, Ruth, we've got to go back to 2014 in the post-implementation review of IFRS 3. To be honest, I can't believe that that was six years ago now. The, the final findings in 2015 identified a variety of things that preparers found challenging with the standard, such as the subsequent accounting for goodwill, the separate recognition of intangibles acquired in a business combination, measurement of non-controlling interests using the two methods, so partial goodwill and full goodwill, and the subsequent accounting for contingent consideration. And, and coming from that review, the board decided to do two things. The, the first project was to look at the definition of a business. And so that's been completed and the amendment's now applicable. And the second project they decided to go on or to take on was goodwill and impairment testing. So all of those items that I listed earlier coming from the post-implementation review, they've got the potential to impact the goodwill and impairment testing project. So the discussion paper sets out that the objective is, and apologies for reading here, to explore whether companies can, at a reasonable cost, provide investors with more useful information about the acquisition those companies make. Better information would help investors assess the performance of companies that have made acquisitions. Better information would also be expected to help investors more effectively hold a company's management to account for management's decisions to acquire those businesses. So in short, can the standard be amended to provide better information about management's decisions? to make an acquisition and then also the subsequent performance of that acquisition. Can it? We're going to find out. Let's talk through the detail. Um, so maybe actually before we get into the detail of all the different bits, could you give us like a high level of what's covered in the discussion paper? Yeah, so the paper covers uh, four main topic areas. First, disclosing information about acquisitions. The second, the effectiveness and the cost of testing goodwill for impairment. So in short, this looks at whether some changes could be made that will improve the current tests, make it easier to apply, result in better outcomes, and can any changes be cost effective? The third area is whether to reintroduce amortization of goodwill 
And so this one is so polarizing that I doubt you'll let me leave without us discussing it. But I warn you up front, while no one has hurt me physically yet, I am scared <laughs> from the debate. Um, so if anyone listening wants to complain afterwards, can I suggest that you email Ruth, not me? <laughs> and you'll get my out of office. <laughs> so the fourth topic is recognizing intangible assets separately from goodwill. And while the recognition of intangibles makes the list of the main topics, the paper does acknowledge that um, that there are varying views. And so there isn't actually any compelling uh, evidence to change what's currently in the standards around the recognition of intangibles. Okay, perfect. So you mentioned those four areas. So let's maybe take, take them in turn. So the first one was there are proposed changes around increasing the disclosure in IFRS 3, I think, to help you assess if an acquisition was almost a good decision. You made a bizcom, did you, did you make the right deal? Uh, can you tell us what the proposed additional disclosure requirements are? Yeah, yeah. So if I tackle what they're trying to achieve up front, the, the intent is to provide more information about the decision-making process and how management monitors the performance of the acquisitions to, in, to investors and, and analysts. And so let me dis discuss disclosure the same way that the DP addressed the topics for you. So the first area on the information that companies should be required to provide about management's objectives for the acquisition. The proposal here is to replace the existing disclosure of the primary reason of a business combination with the strategic rationale for undertaking the acquisition and also with management's objectives for the acquisition at the acquisition date. And so the strategic rationale would be broad. For example, it might be to grow revenue by expanding the company's geographic presence into a new region, say South America, and this could be achieved by making an acquisition in, in a specific country there. The objectives they would uh, they would detail the targets that have been set for the acquisition and they'd link back to the strategic rationale. So they might be financial, they might be non-financial. As an example, the objective might be to grow sales in a segment, you know, or a product by leveraging the newly acquired distribution channel or the new customer base that might have been acquired. There would be an expectation that the metrics that management will use to assess the performance are discussed. The, um, the next area of disclosure has a focus on providing information to show whether the objectives are being met. And so there's an expectation that management does monitor the subsequent performance of an acquisition. The paper acknowledges that it won't be possible to come up with a single metric that would be suitable to measure subsequent performance in all situations. Instead, the, the paper focuses in on the information that is used regularly by management to monitor performance. And so the objective being to show whether management's expectations are being met by the subsequent performance. Okay, so additional disclosure there really about you make a you make an acquisition, why did you make it? So what was the objective you were trying to achieve and then effectively showing, well, did you achieve it or not? Well, how are you monitoring that? Do you have to do that for everything, every single acquisition? So, so the paper poses that question as to whether the disclosure should be provided for all material acquisitions. And the feedback that's discussed in the paper that the board had received was that this could be a lot of disclosure 
for some companies that are acquisitive. And in particular, when you add the ongoing disclosure for acquisitions made over a few years. So, you know, if you make acquisitions in a year and then you make acquisitions the next year, all of a sudden you're getting a lot of acquisitions to continue talking about. So the preliminary view in the paper is that the disclosures should be made, but only for the acquisitions that the CODM monitors. So there's that link back to, to IFRS 8 there. Okay, so we've got the CODM and how they monitor. You mentioned their ongoing disclosures. How long is it proposing you include these for? Yeah, so at the moment, the proposal is that they would be made for at least the two full financial years after the date of acquisition. It would also be a requirement to disclose if management doesn't monitor the performance of the acquisition and also disclose if management changes how the performance is going to be monitored after the acquisition. And I think I think there's something as well in the discussion paper, or not just this list you're talking through now, but also around synergies. What do people have to put in about synergies? Yeah, so that's a good question, and you're testing my memory here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. There's a lot, as you said, 105 paper pages. <laughs> so, look, my recollection around synergies is that it's called out as being one of the major things that, that that's part of the acquisition. And, and obviously, you know, there's a lot that goes into goodwill. And so the idea here for synergies is to disclose what level of synergies are expected. And then to also, I think, monitor the subsequent performance in, in achieving and, and recognizing those synergies. Brilliant. Okay, so lots of additional bits there around synergies, which could, I suppose, what is a synergy could be one of the questions I'd be asking, but we won't go through that today or we'll never get through our podcast. Um, true, true. And now, you mentioned that you you haven't been physically hurt by this, Paul. I feel, feel sad that it's got that bad, that you're even slightly worried about this, but I am going to ask you, I'm afraid. It does, it carefully words it in the discussion paper, but it does bring back the debate, which has, we've had for years around, you know, should you amortise goodwill or should you impair it? I suppose rather than give an opinion on what you think, what what are the two sides of the story there? Why do some people support impairment and some people support amortisation? Do you know what? That's a really good question. You know, why do they? So, so why? Um, yeah, well, why? Why? And and I mean, the interesting thing is, you can put two perfectly sane and rational people in the same room and they will be poles apart on this this question i i kid you not it, you know it's the sort of thing that you do not want to bring up uh <laughs> when you're trying to have a good time a party with some accounts yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right so so look, what's my what's my take on it there is a school of thought around the argument for amortization that that includes some good arguments for example that you know, because the impairment test isn't meeting the expectations of the users, that if amortization was introduced, that would ensure that the balance was going through the PL on a timely basis. There are people that feel actually, you know, goodwill is an asset that's consumed over time. And so the goodwill that comes from the acquisition should be amortized through the through the income statement. And, you know, there are even some people that would say amortization will just make the world simpler. You know, it will be easier for people to apply and it will take some of the pressure off the impairment test. And I guess 
some people in that camp also feel that well actually the difficulties with impairment testing I don't know if insurmountable is the right word to use but you know they're so challenging that we've had this standard for you know 20 years and we can't get impairment testing right so why would we continue with a with a flawed model so that's the sort of pro amortization and 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 you know what I think people are very buried in their view on pro amortization in the impairment camp I guess that there's a variety of arguments there such as well the introduction of amortization won't necessarily fix the problems that people see with impairment testing so amortization would actually increase the headroom so when you're doing your impairment test there will be more headroom in future periods people feel that actually and, and we'll probably get onto this some of the proposed changes to the impairment model will improve impairment testing there's people and and the paper does discuss it briefly that that sort of you know we'll talk about the headroom and i always forget this word you can help shielding. me out shielding. shielding you know the, the the conversation around shielding comes up as well and so so there really are so many different perspectives on both sides of the camp that it's hard to to pin them down and i should stop waffling no i think that that one you could almost have a whole entire podcast on to be honest because like you said there are people with very diverse views on that point and you did mention I suppose what the discussion paper does is it does ask the question so if people want to write in and give their view it's definitely there but they almost say you know they propose to almost continue with impairment unless someone can write in and give them a, you know, really good argument of why we move to amortisation. And because they're proposing to stay with impairment, they are, like you said, trying to simplify the model, trying to improve the model. So the IS36 is almost easier to use. So if we move on to that, they, they do propose to simplify the impairment test in a couple of ways. What are those simplifications? Yeah, so... So I think someone reading the paper might reflect that that perhaps there's opportunities for more simplification. But the, 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 the suggestions that come out in the DP, certainly from a cost perspective, you know, if they moved away from, from annual impairment testing, that might be a good thing to do. So that's explored in the paper. There's, I guess, the obvious one that people have been dealing with since we started this, which is moving from value and use on a pre-tax basis to actually doing value and use on a post-tax basis. And, and I'll be amazed if anyone argues against that simplification. And then, and then the last significant simplification is around restructuring. And, and actually, I had this experience through COVID, right, which is the literature is very specific that you cannot include a restructuring in a value and use calc unless you've already met the criteria to record the restructuring provision and so there'd be some softening in that space that that as i said having gone through covid actually makes a lot of um sense to me um, um all right you go I was just going to say, so that, like, I think as a, someone reading the discussion paper, I think that, you know, that's positive. They're going to be happy, like, remove the annual impairment test. I'm sure everyone gets fed up of doing goodwill every year. Post-tax cash flows, I feel like I could have a party on that one, like, for years. <laughs> that's been an issue. Um, and then restructuring as well. Is, is there anything, I suppose, that's not 
not picked up or areas as well that you think we could simplify further? Yeah, I mean, certainly coming from this podcast, hopefully it might inspire some people to to write in, even if they only answer one or two questions. You know, you don't have to respond to every question. But I think preparers sharing their experiences around the difficulties with impairment testing is something that would be beneficial for for the staff and the board to hear. And so other things that are front of mind for me when, when you pose that question are accounting for deferred tax, right? So so we might fix the the pre-tax, post-tax, but but I've always found particularly if you speak to any of the accounting firms, we all seem to have a slightly different view on how to treat uh, other tax balances, and I, and I know that's really challenging for for preparers. Foreign currency cash flows, you know, again, this is just one of those spots which is really hard to deal with in practice. You know, especially as you think about you know the growing global economy and what businesses look like now, twenty years on from where they were. There's just so much more FX to deal with in impairment testing that's quite hard. You know, a little personal bugbear for me is partial goodwill and the fact that, as I, I sort of mentioned earlier on in the post implementation review for three, they discussed full goodwill versus partial goodwill, which is the do you fair value non controlling interests or not in a business combination. But I've always found you know, most people don't put a lot of thought into how you deal with that partial goodwill in an impairment test. So I think my reflection would be, here's the opportunity for people to think about impairment testing, to think about the things that they find challenging and to, you know, take the time to to write a response to the discussion paper, even if they only answer one or two questions. Yeah, brilliant. So I think this, you know, although they've specifically said, do you agree with these amendments? I think they're in, is there a broader question about other things you can propose? And I love your point there around, you know, you only actually need to respond to one or two questions. I'm not sure if I never even thought that, but I, I actually did a podcast with Daryl Scott a few weeks ago, um, who will see on the ISB. And he was like, you know, really encourages people to respond. Like you said, even if you're only passionate about one thing, whether it be disclosures or I'm sure amortization versus goodwill right in on that so that they get nice uh, diverse views and yeah. um, so we're coming we're coming towards the end now the, there are a sort of a collection of other little discussion points or changes can you just give us a high level of what they are yeah look v- very quickly one that stands out is there's a proposal to present equity net of goodwill so, so essentially, to find a way on the balance sheet to to present net assets uh, with goodwill deducted. Look, I haven't really heard a lot of support or interest in that to, to date. Um, but you know, if it's something that you're interested in, you might want to to write in on that. The other I, I mentioned early on actually was intangibles and recognizing other or revisiting how intangibles are recognized in a business combination is discussed, but it's not something that they were looking to deal with. But if if someone, again, is passionate, um, you might want to read that section of the paper and see if there's something worth adding. Brilliant. So I suppose we, we've encouraged people there to, you know, we've covered the what's in there and said you can comment. What's the deadline? When do they, if they do want to write in, what do they need to do? Yeah, is this where I say? Is this where I say Happy New Year? So uh, look, the deadline for thirty first of December. Um, that was an extension because of COVID. Uh, if you're like me, 
you'd probably like to get this done before Christmas. So I think we'll be aiming for uh, for about the 18th. But, uh, yeah, the deadline's the 31st of December. You don't want to talk to me about impairment on Christmas Day. Paul Shepherd. No, you I don't think have you mean you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go, 31st of December, if people do want to write in, they've got a deadline, which is fast approaching. So brilliant. And you can obviously submit your letter to the ISB. So thank you very much, Paul. I think that's really helpful to give people an insight into what's in the DP and then they can work out if they want to respond. Well, well when we've done our comment letter, you have to come back and give us the PwC views or what we think, what we're going to propose as the answers, if that's okay. Yeah, do you know what? I'd love to, and uh, we, we we might have to edit out the uh, the section on you know uh, amortisation versus impairment. <laughs> but <laughs> not your view, Paul. <laughs> no, no, no. But yes, yeah. No, that'd be great. Thank you very much, Ruth. Brilliant. Thanks for coming, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.